Jeffrey Firth, I'm a chaplain in the Royal Air Force, currently based at RAF Marham in Norfolk. Um, I ended up as a ended up as a chaplain partly because of um, when I was training at Oak Hill, we did a chaplaincy placement, and uh, I have to say most chaplains I'd come across had left me thinking, get a real job, uh, or uh, subsequent to that, sort of thinking, actually, no, stay where you are because you're best out of doing a real job uh, and avoiding it in that particular way. But I kind of thought chaplaincy works best, I think, in environments that are closed. Um, so prisons and the military came to my mind uh, on that particular thing. And I did a placement with an army chaplain. I was really struck by the opportunities for ministry with a, a constituency that the church very regularly doesn't get to speak to. And um, anyway, I, I part that experience, talked it through with the late, great Mike Ovey, uh, and then went happily into my curacy. And then the uh, RAF sort of got in touch, bumped into an RAF chaplain uh, in the course of my travels. I'd love to come and see what you do. And um, really excited by that. And before I know it, I was being recruited. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm in the RAF. So, so we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 8, 1 Peter 3 starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think Dave gave you a little bit of a clue as to uh, how the three of us ended up uh, being elected as speakers uh, at this conference. George, I'll uh, answer your question now. I'm very happy to speak at the FW conference <laughs> this year. Um, as we've been sort of thinking and working through, we've had some interesting conversations, uh, the three of us uh, along the way, uh, and I think we found it very stimulating to uh, be engaged in a conversation on, on the subjects uh, that we have. Sorry? Stimulating. Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying is another word uh, which, which might be used. And uh, it became very apparent on Friday that uh, the three of us had reverted to type. So Jason had said... 
I finished mine a week ago. I'm quite happy with it. Dave was busy uh, typing up the end of his, and I'm saying, I think I've got some ideas. Uh, and uh, so what you have, um, where they each have a delightful 5,000-word uh, script, uh, you've got everything I've got uh, in your hands in the handout uh, that is before you. So we shall see what happens. And I have to say that is largely just a whole pile of quotes just uh, uh, strung together. So we'll see how we go as we, uh, as we have a look at this. We turn tonight. So where we've sort of got to is this. Dave has outlined what is the mission of God. God is seeking his greater glory as the sort of the master. If I might put it this way in slightly different terms. The, t- the ring one is the master narrative. The great thing God is doing. God is seeking his own glory. And we are preserved from that becoming an egotistical thing. Because God is triune. God seeking his glory is inherently a giving to one uh, member of the Trinity to the other. There's an, in, an eternal nature uh, to that. And if that's God's greatest purpose and the whole of human history falls within that uh, in, a temporal, uh, uh, in a temporal way where there's a defined beginning and there's a, 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 a defined end to the world as it is, it is all feeding into that greater uh, narrative. Jason then sort of said, well, let's have a look at the world around us. Where, 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 where are we at? Uh, and actually just threw in along the way, actually, do you know what? People in our church are not much different to the world around. Which does leave the question for those of us uh, who are uh, keen and interested in serving the Lord, uh, leading churches or in a whole variety of ways, what task, what job is the church how is the church to engage with this? How do we engage in a culture? How are we to serve that greater mission of God? And that is where we pick up uh, tonight. We will come back to 1 Peter uh, 3 um, uh, at the end. I've kind of done this in terms of, uh, if you're following along, you have left a bit of space, I hope, as we go, uh, uh, giving you the headline. So if you remember nothing else tonight and if you uh, uh, have this uh, desire to fall to sleep, someone's already said uh, they were going to have a lie down, but I think they've turned up, turned up anyway, uh, Chris. Uh, um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, but I know my voice has the ability to send children and then their parents to sleep very regularly. So if you nod off, let me give you the headline. And if you remember this and nothing else, we will be doing all right. The headline is, the church, the local church, our expression of church, needs to be better at being the church. Uh, And uh, I want to try and show you how I get to that. Um, And uh, the route might not necessarily seem uh, obvious, but we'll get to that, and we will come to that, and I hope I will show that. My nerves, and Dave certainly knows I have been quite nervous, is some of the things that I'm drawing out and some of the things I say will feel, it feels to me in delivering them as though they could be felt to have a sharp edge. I'm not shying away from that, but I am wanting to recognise that uh, with you as we go through. So uh, our purpose then, uh, our purpose, what, what is it that we are here to do? Our worship. Uh, that's where we got to. Uh, Dave uh, quoted uh, Piper along the way, and we'll come back to that later on. Worship, mission exists where worship doesn't. Uh, worship is what we are made for. We all worship, and the question is what we worship. But worship, as Christians understood it, and as, as I would express it, is this. Worship is the participation in the self-glorification of God. Uh, worship is the participation, the self-glorification uh, of God. I then uh, found, um, and I'll say something in a moment about the resources, which are all <coughs> listed at the end. Um, James Smith says, Christian worship is nothing less than an invitation to participate in the life of the triune God. I think at the end that amounts to exactly the same thing. Uh, if we on about, it's the, the triune God seeking his own glory. Uh, that sense, it's but notice the word that uh, I've, included, uh, I've included, and uh, he's there, is the word participate. Worship is us joining in that eternal purpose of seeking the glory of God, to proclaim the glory of God, of sharing in God seeking his own glory uh, as time goes on. That is what we are called to do. That is what all Christian people are called to do. Just in terms of uh, the resources, I just want to throw uh, a few things up in front of you. You'll see those sort of listed, I think, point 17 uh, at the very end. Uh, no, no wussy five points from me. Uh, and, uh, 
we'll go for a bit more than that. Uh, seven, uh, so, uh, listed at the end. So, um, they're in alphabetical order. This is not one I have yet read. I've read quite a lot about it, the Benedict Option. I don't know, has anyone read this? The Gospel Coalition of the Theological Stories of 2017 have listed this as one of the top ten stories of 2017, people's reactions to this. Uh, and the reason I mention connection to his, in many ways, a lot of what he says uh, is what I would want to say. The church needs to be better at being church. We need to actually encourage and strengthen ourselves. The criticism comes, it feels like a bit of a moving target. Does that mean, therefore, we shouldn't engage with the world? And how should we engage with the world? And I think people aren't quite sure what he's saying on that. Um, But this has proved to be a hugely, during this last calendar year, a hugely stimulating book that's provoked all sorts of reactions in all sorts of ways. Um, So undoubtedly, there is a qualification to be had to it, but it is worth noting that that is something uh, much talked about. Uh, Glenn Harrison is one. Uh, Jason, I think I uh, knows. I was uh, reading on holiday last November uh, with this in, in mind. The better story already mentioned, and for exactly the reason that Jason said, he tries to deal with God. Well, he does deal, I think, with God, sex, and human flourishing. But the way he goes about arguing the need to tell a better story has applications way far beyond that. Um, the way he goes about arguing that we need to articulate a better story in order to engage with this issue within the church is one that I think we should be hearing across the board on just about everything uh, that comes away. And so I commend that just as Jason did uh, to you. Dave went for the latest in James Smith, who's a, a, a relatively new. I've only come across him in the last sort of six, nine months. Um, uh, thoroughly formed Augustinian in his approach. He's written a trilogy, and Dave was waving around the. Was it desiring the kingdom? Was that the uh, final it was third awaiting one? The king. Await, awaiting the king. I heard about it three weeks ago. Um, uh, there's uh, there's there's uh, there's a trilogy, and that was recently published. And between the second and the third in the trilogy, at the more popular level, and certainly where I'm at and my intellectual limitations, this worst suited me. You are what you love. Um, by James K. Smith, The Spiritual Power of Habit. Uh, I quote extensively uh, from this. Uh, so uh, if Jason had said he was plagiarising Harrison at one point, I think I'm plagiarising Smith. To Can I really commend that? Just absolutely superb. Speaking into an American context, but just stunning. Um, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll commend that to you. And just as the classic, because it fits with the theme and speaks to it, I only allude to it in passing, uh, the classic Desiring God and all the Piper sort of esque stuff uh, is really, uh, really good. So I, I'll leave those uh, there. But we're heading in terms of, we're talking about uh, our purpose is worship, participation, our participation in God's self glorification. And um, I just want to remind us, you know this, as to what the church is. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's the church being the church. It's living its story. It's demonstrating uh, what it is to be church and my sort of contention as we're working through is there's a gap between what that says and the reality of what happens as we gather on a Sunday morning and that's what I want to try and explore and tease out and uh, just in case Acts 2 didn't give it article 19 the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance So uh, that's the church. That's what it should perhaps be looking like as it uh, gathers. 
Um, but I also want to distinguish here, in a way perhaps I don't think we do, but Dave picked up on it quite sharply and I've included his and a uh, further reference for you, uh, uh, is a very sharp distinction between, as, as, as Dave explained to us, Carson puts it as the church being the church and church as Christians. Or as Dan Strange puts it, the church has gathered, the church is going. I was directed to, uh, and it's listed at the back, to a talk by Paul Barnett at the Bishopgate Conference in 1992, of which I know certainly Wallace was at, because he was one of the other speakers at that conference uh, back uh, in 1992. And uh, he explores these themes of uh, the, the church and the people of God. And while he would want to affirm everything that the Sydney, um, uh, Sydney model of the Knox Robinson model of church uh, would contend as that, he thinks that analysis is right as to what the local church is. He said there is another doctrine of the people of God which is often missed. And it seems to me to map very closely over to these other distinctions that are meant. The church has gathered the Sunday morning as we would think of it. The church has gathered where the believers come together where the church is church, the local assembly, and then the church, as the other way we're talking about, Christians living the lives out there as going out, the people of God living their life. And you may well find as we go through that I switch between that language, um, uh, but I think those things work. So we talk about church being the formal gathering and then Christians going, pe people of God in the world. And I think that's a really helpful distinction. And I think one of the problems comes when we confuse the categories. So with those kind of preliminary uh, things said, what is our purpose? What is the church? Let's be careful in what we mean by church, making distinctions clear. I do want to ask that question, uh, which we will come back to. What role does the church by which, having just defined it, I mean the church as the church, as church, the church gathered, the, uh, uh, the church uh, uh, as the local assembly, what part does that play in mission? Well, let me begin, though, by uh, taking on a story. I signed up a number of years ago, I don't get them anymore, uh, to a weekly email which used to send out sermon illustrations. I think in my entire time of getting them for about five years, I used three, uh, generally because I could think of something better and uh, uh, a bit weird. But this is one of them. Uh, and I, I've used it in uh, sermons. You may well have used something like this uh, at various points, but let me read the story. A woman seeking counsel at a psychologist confided that she hated her husband and intended to divorce him. I want to hurt him all I can, she declared firmly. Well, in that case, said the psychologist, I advise you to start showering him with compliments. When you have become indispensable to him, when he thinks you love him devotedly, then start the divorce action. That is the way to hurt him. Some months later, the wife returned to report that all was going well. She had followed the suggested course. Good, said the psychologist. Now's the time to file for divorce. Divorce, the woman said indignantly. Never. I love my husband dearly. It's a great illustration, and I use it as illustration of that which you start to act, you become. That which you start to act, those actions that you undertake, begin to slowly mould you and change you. So what started out as an intention to really hurt actually turns out to turning her and making her love him. And I want to sort of say, I think that illustrates what I want to sort of say, captures the truth that I want to address. My big problem in putting this talk together and why all these ideas were floating around is there's a, there's a question of where do you come in uh, to the subject? And uh, you'll see it as uh, over the page, it's uh, sort of illustrated there, because there's three things I want to talk about as to uh, sort of explain how that change happens. It's the heart and love and worship. Now, you know, I mean, any Bible dictionary spells it out, that the heart is the seat of the real you. 
Um, I, 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 uh, I'm always, I'm very highly amused, sort of. We, we talk in our society, don't we, about the heart being the, the lovey-dovey uh, thing. Of course, in, in Bible times, that was more the job of the bowels. Um, you know, I love you with all my bowels isn't necessarily going to catch on to our day. But the idea is the gut, isn't it? I mean, we, we know that. If you have that sense of love and excitement, you feel it. You feel the butterflies. There's reasons why uh, the Bible would put it in those ways. But actually, the heart is the seat of the real you. It, it, it's, uh, and, and it expresses itself, and this is why we get that connection, expresses itself in loves and desires. The heart is where you are, but it reveals our loves and desires. And then thirdly, from that, we go on, we love what we worship. So there's a connection that way, but it works the other way as well. What we worship shapes our loves and forms the heart. So um, it's not just, a, uh, it's, so the, those things work. And Jason, I think, was teasing that out in a, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, we end up worshipping something, but what we worship begins to actually work backwards and form the heart. And though each of those three things, the heart, love and worship, um, is mutually reinforcing. Uh, and you've got to break in somewhere and address the heart fundamentally. Uh, you've got to question the loves and you've got to change the object of worship. All three need to be changed if we're to live and be authentic Christian people. And just in case, uh, I've thrown loads of verses, which is a great way of padding out the handout, but just a sample of the verses that speak to the heart. I'm not going to go through them all, but notice uh, the significance of the heart in the Bible's teaching. Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings. Problem of a heart that is not seeking uh, after God in any shape or form. And notice, as it's deliberately put, I think, to reflect just how horrific it is, the contrast, um, and that God's, the, the Lord's uh, heart was deeply troubled. In the seat of the real him, using that metaphor, he is troubled at what he saw on the earth. And then, of course, famously, uh, the royal law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength, everything about you committed and all effort going into loving the Lord. And then I put the next one in because uh, of where Johnny's been taking us in the morning. Hannah was praying in her heart. And then the song begins. Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Her deep inner longings expressed in prayer and then overflowing uh, in, in song. The heart speaking in that way. Or, or, or 1 Kings 3, uh, Solomon's asked, you know, what do you want? And so he says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. Make the real me know how to do this rightly before you. Psalm 51, give me, creating me a pure heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Matthew 5, Jesus himself says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. <coughs> and interestingly, in Luke's take on the parable of the sower, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. <coughs> who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop, or Ephesians 3. I pray out the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm laboring the point, but I want to get over this very, very important point. It is the heart that orientates. It's the heart where the problem is. It's the heart that fundamentally needs changing. You notice all of those requests, all of the positively and negatively as we might perceive them, are all because there is a fundamental problem in the heart. And that brings us to our problem. 
And I've put the same thing three ways because it is a question of you can cast this, 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 these three things, the heart, love and worship, in different ways. And I've put them uh, down here. So a fundamental human problem is our hearts are not orientated towards the Lord, which means in turn our loves and desires are misdirected, that we worship the wrong things. Worse than that, we fail to worship the one that we ought. <coughs> or put it another way, we've learnt to love the wrong things. Such that our hearts are tuned away from the Lord and denies the Lord the worship that is due. Or again, casting it another way around. We worship that which is not deserving of worship and thereby loved the wrong things and found ourselves with hearts that are far from God. Three different ways of expressing it. Because actually it can begin at any point. These three things intimately connected, mutually reinforcing. Get one wrong and the others will go wrong as well. Sir Smith, uh, who I'm going to quote at length in a moment, says this. To say you are what you love is synonymous with saying you are what you worship. And you see the the spirit-led reformation on our lives is a recalibration of our hearts and worship and a reorientation of our lives and loves. Deforming the cultural practices that we've picked up and assumed from the culture around us. And then reforming us in love towards God. That is the Spirit's work, is to sort of deform what we absorb and then change us so that it's, we're rightly orientated that we would worship rightly, uh, that we seek after him, that we love him, and we love those he has given us uh, to minister to and around us. That is what the Spirit does. And that world around us, Jason, I think, with almost depressing but piercing accuracy, took us through an analysis of that uh, this afternoon. That society of which we're part fundamentally, doesn't it, elevates things that are not ultimate and not final and calls on us to love them and worship <coughs> them. And yes, we ultimately will work, we fall, into that, uh, fall into that trap if apart from God. It's why Calvin can turn around and talk about our hearts being an idol factory. We go after that which isn't God. If we've been, we are offered alternative visions of the good life, of what should be worship. But of course, anything that is not God finally disappoints. We do that in terms of our relationships, don't we? Too often uh, we see the one that we marry and we're almost expecting them to bring us salvation. We place them on a pedal and expect things of them they cannot deliver. Or if we just get this new car, as Jason was talking about, just get this next billion or million then i'll be happy and it doesn't quite deliver we seek fame and fortune we achieve it and yet it doesn't quite deliver smith will use the language of secular liturgies now, that's quite a big thing that he talks about uh, but we might also want to talk about deficient stories picking on and harrison and uh, uh, dan taylor who we'll come to in a moment they may contain some truth in them, and I think that's one of the things I appreciated about Glenn Harrison's analysis. He wasn't just dismissive of everything uh, that is brought out by the, some of the stories that go round. But we do want to say that they all ultimately end in tragedy. And as Jason was speaking, one of the quotes in my ministry that I'm reminded of a lot, and I don't have an awful lot of time for very much that Henry, Th um, Henry Thoreau said, who's 19th century... Uh, trans, into transcendentalism and stuff. I mean, it, you know, that's just rubbish. But he he uh, he, uh, he said uh, in that this this quote, and I think it's worth me reading. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country, and you have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even on what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work, but it is characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. We're just constantly filling ourselves, distracting ourselves, but most men leave lives of quiet 
desperation. It certainly seems true to me as I speak to all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, day in, day out. We put a gloss on, we have the nice selfie on Instagram. But actually, most people live lives of quiet desperation. And at this point, I think I want to talk about now the, the power of stories. Because we've used the word story, I'm using it, I'm about to use it uh, quite a bit uh, more. Uh, um, and I think I just want to be clear what we mean on that. Back in 2008, I went to the Desiring God National Conference over in Minneapolis, and uh, it was speaking on the uh, the theme of the Church of. Um, it was speaking uh, on the theme, the power of words and the wonder of God was the title, and they managed to dig out a Christian English professor called Dan Taylor, put him on in the graveyard shift right after lunch. Uh, he was, I have to be said, uh, one of the driest speakers I've ever heard. It was quite a badly structured talk because he, uh, he, he had 16 points and uh, only managed to get to eight of them in the allotted time. Um, but it remains probably one of the most important talks I've ever seen. The link to the talk and uh, the, uh, 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 the I've, I've got one of the books of his. The link to the talk is in the notes. Also, there's a, from that conference, there's a book being produced, uh, which you can get as a free download. Uh, chapter 5 is Daniel Taylor's uh, book, uh, a chapter on that, which tries to summarise. Uh, the address is worth hearing, um, but be awake. Uh, it is worth hearing, but a couple of quotes, and then I'm going to in a moment read something else that he says here. And I think this is really helpful in understanding what we mean by story. Human beings, he says, are story-shaped creatures. We are born into stories, raised in stories, and live and die in stories. Whenever we have to answer the big question, who I am, why I am here, what I should do, or what happens to me when I die, we tell a story, the earth story. The foundational story is the story of God's love for his creation, and all other stories are to be measured against it. The single best way of conceiving faith and of a faithful life is as a story in which you are a character. Your life task is to be a character in the greatest story ever told. It is what you were created for. I have to say, when I heard that, I spent several hours trying to ponder the gospel defined as finding your place in God's story. It was quite a radically different language to anything I'd heard before. Uh, and I had to spend quite a long time just trying to ruminate on that and to the extent to which uh, I would want to use that. But then he does go on, and I think this is next bit's very important. Stories are God's idea. God is the one who created story, the form of story, and us as story-shaped creatures. He has chosen story as the primary way to present himself to his creation. The Bible does not simply contain stories. It reflects God's choice of the form of story as the primary means by which to tell us about himself and how to be in right relationship with him. It is also the form God has chosen to preserve the knowledge over many, many generations. His point is, I think, and certainly in terms of biblical theology, you'd want to say this, is it's an unfolding revelation, we often say. But actually, we could equally say it's an unfolding story where God is revealing himself with increasing clarity over the pages of Scripture until we see the, the fullness of that plan in Jesus Christ. But it is unfolding, which is why Paul can talk about a, a, a mystery once hidden but now revealed. It's been there all along, but actually it's been unfolding and unpacking, and so we see it uh, uh, in uh, increasing um, colour as the story goes on. Forgive me for reading some quotes out, but uh, I just wanted to read this out because I think he illustrates the point he makes beautifully. And uh, let, me, let me just read this bit. This, this story in Joshua ends with these words. He did this so that all the nations of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and that you may always fear the Lord your God. The Lord is powerful. <coughs> That is a proposition, a declaration of fact, a statement. It is true, 
but by itself it doesn't have a lot of impact. It hangs suspended in the land of abstract assertion. To be meaningful to human beings, it must be given the body and blood of story. How do we know that the Lord is powerful? Let me tell you a story. What does it mean to say the Lord is powerful? Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you the story about the time the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. A story about a time Gideon routed the enemies of Israel with a handful of men. A story about the feeding of 5,000 people. The story about the empty tomb. Propositions are important. The Lord is powerful. The Lord is good. Jesus is the Son of God. Christ did rise from the dead. But propositions depend on the stories out of which they arise for their power and meaning and practical application. I find that really refreshing. We are right to have our creeds which summarise in propositional form the truths that we believe. But if that is all we have, we have not got enough. We speak to the mind and actually story engages far more than the mind. It engages the heart, and it's the heart that we want to change. Story I find increasingly, particularly in an age where there's all sorts of competing stories, all sorts of stories out there, the idea of presenting the gospel as a story is one I think finds great resonance in our time and in our age. Well, I hope in some small sense I may have persuaded you that story is a powerful means of trying to communicate the gospel. We're not meaning fiction and untrue. We're meaning of earthing truths in the reality of experience to which we can relate. And that's how God does it. That's the whole notion of a God accommodating himself to us, the infinite to the finite. God presents story uh, to us. Well, with all that said, let me take us back to that question. What role does the church, as church, as gathered, play in mission? Well, I want to say this. The fundamental task of the church is to tell a better story, offer better worship, so that our loves are appropriately directed, that our love for God is affirmed, that our hearts are rightly oriented, <coughs> offering a better story. And I won't read all the Smith quote, but it was too good to miss out. Worship that restores our love will be worship that restores our imagination. And uh, I love the way he sort of mixes the eye in the word restores at that particular point. And uh, he would sort of say, historic Christian worship is a narrative art that rehearses the story of redemption in the very form of worship enacting the story of the whole world. The point Smith gets to is actually not only do the individual elements of our services as we gather on Sunday testify to the gospel, but actually the very structure and the very way it's put together speaks of the gospel. So we have a gathering. We come into the presence of God. We have a need to confess our sin. We then, having received the declaration of forgiveness, then hear from the Lord and turn to him and eat with him as we gather at the table before we are then sent back out to live the world. It's a gospel-shaped order. And it's interesting as you read Smith being an American in American context to see how much the Book of Common Prayer uh, is quoted and uh, sort of thinking as an Anglican, gosh, we've got some things right uh, for sure along the way and some of the context he's speaking into. But he would say that's a story-shaped worship that's going on. Each part playing a part testifying to the story, but the whole together testifying to that And I think within that as well, as we learn that story, as it becomes familiar to us, as it gets embodied uh, within us uh, as as we go uh, along. And uh, he quotes C.S. Lewis at the end, carrying the belief in our bones. It being so familiar, intrinsic to us that actually it's where we default to. Uh, the importance of story in that way. I think this is actually why I I, I want to still uh, uh, applaud Jonathan Edwards 
oh, I need to really get into the religious affections a whole lot more. Or, the, you know, the more contemporary one, which is why I waved around John Piper, and the importance of desiring God, because it speaks to actually a story in our lives with our desires reorientated, our loves reorientated, because in doing that, we glorify God because we'll worship rightly and our hearts will be directed in ways that please the Lord. They are not new truths that we're talking about. Edward spoke of that. Piper speaks of that. Well, with that said, and I, I want to sort of put four contemporary concerns that I've got. Uh, they're crudely expressed, and I felt the need to sort of put that on my title uh, as we go there. The first one I don't think will be particularly controversial with those of us here. The second one shouldn't be to most of us. The third and fourth, I think, probably get slightly closer. Um, so the first thing I want to sort of knock in the head is the idea that worship is fundamentally something we do. So as much as there might be a right connection for it, I don't want to right knock it completely. Here I am to worship. Here I am to say you are my God. Here I am. It's about what we do uh, at that particular point. No, no, no. Worship is not primarily what we do. Worship is where God, to use that Smith phrase, recalibrates our hearts, recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, rehabituates our loves. That is what is happening. It is, he uses the word gymnasium. We've had that, I don't want to, I'm nervous throwing that out given how field hospital work was run with uh, the other day. But, um, but he sort of says it's the gymnasium, it's where God works us. It's actually where we are, we are changed. So the first thing is, I want to knock on the head is this idea that the worship is fundamentally something we do. And we see that presented in that way uh, too readily, I think, around and about. And then um, worship is something that is lived apart from the church, which I, I've I certainly come across. I, and I'm sure you can think of uh, various constituents within the perhaps more conservative evangelical world, which seem to think worship is everything but the gathering. Uh, on on the Sunday, and sort of the proof text pulled out for that, isn't it? Is is Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, uh, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of man. Then you went to test and prove God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Ah, uh, you see, it's out there. It's as you live life. That's worship. Well, daily life is the arena in which worship is lived out <coughs> but living it out is nourished by worship as the life of the church it is different but actually it begins in the church because we can't live it out as a living sacrifice unless we know what worship is unless god has actually worked our hearts so i do want to talk about our gatherings on sunday as worship and i hope that's obvious i mean more than the songs as worship I think the third one, though, uh, that is a concern I've got is that the people God gathered as church do so fundamentally to engage in an intellectual exercise. No, it doesn't. Absolutely not. Uh, Dave, I think, alluded to the fact if that was the case, just download a talk. <coughs> There's loads of them online. If that's all it was, you can do that. It's not the way God created his image bearers to work. And if it was, it seems to me, as I've been thinking about, however you understand Romans 7, Romans 7 is completely pointless if it's just a question of thinking things better. No, worship is all of us gathered up, hearts and loves are altered. And if church isn't meeting us and challenging us in the way we love and calling on our hearts to be changed as we worship, as we tell the story of the gospel then what is it doing? It's not a lecture hall. <clears throat> and then finally, one I've, uh, one I've reflected on, having really wondered about um, a couple of churches, one of the things of the nature of my ministry is I see different churches in different places and the posting that I get uh, moved every two or three years I get I try and always land myself in a, a local congregation in addition to the church I'm, I'm leading and, and I've, I'm led to reflect on a number of places but there's a category confusion I think that we uh, see around us 
where we, we are so fixated on trying to define church in a particular way as the, the, the local assembly is, um, is gathered, that we confuse it with what the people of God is. So where Barnett would come to say there's church and there's the people of God, where Carson would say there's church as church and church as Christians, church as gathered or church as, as going, we mix the two up. And the consequences that I think are profound and run very deep. The work of mission, and I kind of want to say see Dave's talk at that particular point because what I mean by that, but actually as the thing I've particularly got in mind, chiefly evangelism here, but I don't want to limit it in that way, but chiefly evangelism, is the work of the people of God. If they're loving the Lord, if their hearts are so orientated towards God, if they're loving him with that degree of intensity, they should be speaking and living and demonstrating the reality of God in their lives day by day across all the people they come across. It should be as natural to talk about, I went to church and I heard about this and it made me think about it. I was so excited and enthused as people do about talking about the football match. The work of the churches is to feed and nurture believers, to restory them, to worship, to enlarge their love for God, to orientate their hearts towards God. If we confuse the category, we will fail to uh, have a gathering that models the story. We will fail to instill the story. We will fail to work people to worship God. If we don't tell the better story, we, it will be inadequate to feed the believers. And it will be wholly inadequate as, 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 a, as anything desirable to the unbeliever. And moreover, and I've certainly seen this, evangelism can look like it's done and dusted when we've successfully invited someone to the guest service. Well, that is just tragic. Just tragic if we've reduced our work of evangelism to inviting them along to a Sunday morning. Mission exists because worship doesn't. But the church must worship so that the people of God are strengthened for the mission. It is, I'm going to throw it in, the field hospital, the oasis. And to pick up on another question that came up, the, uh, the outlying dim reflection of the heaven reality to come. That's what the church should be. Which does bring me to 1 Peter 3. And chiefly verse 15. Because 1 Peter is addressed to believers who are scattered, exiles in the world. It's, it's addressed to a people who are out there trying to live the Christian life. They are being the people of God in the world. And to encourage them and strengthen them, Peter says this, In your hearts, notice where that is. Revere Christ as Lord. Keep with him. Don't give up. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It presumes that people can see they have a hope. And it's certainly in the surrounding verses, in the deeds that they do. So he, he concludes, so even if they do uh, speak of you badly... They may be ashamed of their slander. It assumes that people are living it in the world. Because you're not going to be asked unless you are. So revere Christ in your heart. My conclusion. We need to tell a better story. We need to live a better love. We need to enthuse a heart of praise. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for your great kindness towards us in building your church. Thank you that you call us to participate in your glorification. Thank you that you invite us to participate in the life of you as Trinity. Thank you that you are concerned that we should worship you rightly.
that we should love you truly, that our hearts should have, uh, delight in you in all that it does, in all that we are. Heavenly Father, minister to us. Help us to revere Christ in our hearts. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Questions? Yeah, um, there's a seminar coming tomorrow morning. Yeah. Uh, but do you want to take clarification, clarification. questions? Yeah. Just push some ideas a little bit if you want to. That would be helpful. Um, you don't need me up here for this. No, no, I'm sure I can. Um, I'm going to go Jason first. Okay. Uh, that's pretty sensible. <laughs> Let's do nice first. Um, Am I picking up that there's two ways in which we're best to discuss worship? Worship as a whole of life, loving God and making your table or serving the burgers in a life that's loving God. And worship in the church where you're both learning to praise him better and growing in that. So you flip the burgers with more love towards God better on Monday. Yeah, I think I think I think that's the, um, that's how to make sense of the uh, the Romans, tw- uh, the Romans twelve. I think part of the problem has been that <coughs> Romans twelve has been elevated uh, out of the whole teaching, the whole scripture. And what I'm saying is, actually, worship first and foremost is about God meeting us, ministering to us, something He's doing in us, in changing us. Um, which is then lived out and seen in how we live, which is the is the ongoing reflection of that worship. But uh, so I wouldn't say it's unrelated. I want to say that what we do in the week flows from the worship we have on the Sunday. Uh, and and I think the other way I'd want to sort of say it is the way we are in the week, which we might want to say with with Paul in Romans twelve is is worship. It is how we show what we love. It's where we show what we love. Um, and and I've been trying to use that form of language for that in that way here I think is that clear um, it will get clearer as I think okay <laughs> thank you I'm going to go to James then. Um, I think the church is like a gymnasium is that people sign up in January and don't come as often as they should um, <laughs> <laughs> there had to be someone in there yeah yeah and it would be you yeah. uh, I just want to tease out this this um Distinction between the church, the local assembly, and the people of God. Mm. I understand why Barnet needs it. He wants to try and keep holding up Robinson. Yeah. Obviously, if, if he's happy to dispense with that Bible, does, then I'm not quite sure <laughs> where, um, where you, whether you need that and how helpful that distinction becomes. The, I, I see dangers in it. I, see, I understand your concerns with the other, but there's a danger in the impression that you're you're fundamentally sending people out from the church and that the church is something that they are leaving behind in some sense when they go out into the world. Because that's not the picture of a family or of a holy people or of a body of Christ, which are obviously the New Testament is used. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I think I, I fundamentally disagree with anything you've said. I'm just wanting to... Yeah, I no, I, I think there, 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 there is... Uh, a risk that what I didn't want to do in this talk, you, you're, you're aware I have concerns over the Knox Robinson model uh, and how that, that works. What I didn't want to do in this talk was, um, given I thought I had enough material, to hugely critique that. What I did find really helpful, and I don't know if Wallace can remember 26 years ago at all or anything to come up, what I did find really helpful in that is he traces this theme of the people of God and what that means. It's Christians living the life, it seems to me. Whereas I thought that was a really helpful uh, metaphor and picture, um, which he's adding along. You'll notice I laid, I, I've, I've laid the, uh, the Carson and Dan Strange form over it. Um, yes, there is a concern, I think, that we can drive it too sharply. I think if you were to ask Paul Barnett or to listen to the, it's a 55 minute, lecture really um I, I think he is quite careful in what he's saying so i don't want to do injustice to him Did you, wallace do you want to yeah the, the point that paul is is really after is that 
<coughs> the Knox-Robinson view, is, as we know, says there's two assemblies, the local assembly and the yeah. heavenly assembly, and really there's nothing else of church much at all. And <coughs> while, while Paul says that that's the primary use of the concept of the church in the New Testament local congregation, that it misses entirely the collective bigger view of the Old Testament, the church together, yeah. and indeed the, the other side of the New Testament teaching of the church in an area, or the church collectively in a city, or that's really the only point he's trying to make. He's trying to say within the Knox Robinson thing, which he accepts, but he thinks is limited and dangerous to be uh, not seen with another perspective. And in that sense, that's that's very Anglican, but it's much more importantly very biblical yeah. and very helpful. And he was. He was actually with, within the Knox Robinson kind of school from from Sydney, saying, "Hang on, guys, you know you you've stated a truth, but stated it so much you've over exaggerated it to actually make it almost an untruth." That 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 is yeah, that's a really good uh, summary of it. But I think in that sense, the way he uses people of God, he he is talking about that cohesive connectedness and he draws that draws that out actually in the latter part of that he just talk about that connectedness in that way I, I I'm I'm putting it there because I thought that talk that talk was really significant and really important I've also put it down uh, here because actually I think we are very influenced in the way not necessarily everyone here but we're very influenced by that Knox Robinson understanding and actually saying here's something else to put with that I think is is majorly helpful which is why I particularly included that George had a hand that was flying up very keenly um, um, so I'm trying to get your thesis it's that the church engages the people of God in worship yeah. by addressing the heart um, and therefore, the people of God are equipped in mission. Is that? Yeah. So, what I wanted to ask is is not the church collectively engaged in mission rather than simply collectively engaged in worship in order to equip individuals for mission? So, just say that last bit again. Is the church. Is not the church collectively engaged in mission as a, a, as a body together, as opposed to being the place in which their hearts are enlarged for God, or <coughs> equipping them to be individual missionaries? Which is um, it, I think it's. Because Acts, Acts 2, for example, seems to be the. Yeah. Collective, and, and it's when they're, they're, they're embodying all of. I don't want to present it as neither or. I haven't, I mean, that's one of the things I was hoping to pick up, which I've missed out time, but I'm hoping to pick that's up a little bit in the, in, 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 in the seminar a, a, a little bit, where I think I want to put Acts 2 down next against Isaiah 60 um, and, and see how that looks. Because it is very striking, is is the church as the church doing what it fundamentally is, fundamentally worshipping in the right way, that is mission because it affects the way in which they uh, live um, live and act amongst one another, and that is inherently attractive, and the Lord adds to their number. Uh, and I think the way in which Acts goes on, you do get this repeated thing, them being who they are, the Lord adds, and, is, uh, uh, and that's inherently <coughs> attractive to those around. Um, so I think it is that, definitely, you're absolutely right. But I think it is also, when you go to work on the Monday, um, uh, being so affected uh, by that that act of worship and what that means and the reorientation of heart and loves that actually that is seen by those around. So I think I, it's it's both. I think I want to stick to. Okay. But even with following on from that, you sort of the the idea of going out for mission on Monday morning, isn't isn't it sort of both and? In terms of the church, in that sense, so if you sort of, if, if we're if we're sending people out, and we're gathering together people to sort of to invigorate them and to and to prepare them for the mission they've got, 
He's, he's almost like, like a, he's sort of a, an army. He said, this is our mission. And you've all, you're, you're going out and you're doing your own separate jobs as part of that mission. But it's still the mission of the church <coughs> to, to do the various jobs that we've got, we're doing out there, the various mission fields that we've got. It's still the mission of the church as well as our own individual mission. Yes, I think what I'm trying to avoid, uh, not say um, is that... Um, what I'm not trying to do is to make it the, uh, the, the, the Monday stuff, the responsibility of the gathering. In, in, the se- in the sense, my caution is we end up offering something insipid, which neither does what it needs to do for the believers and doesn't do anything for the unbeliever either. Um, um, and uh, not strengthening people to live the faith. And that, that's what I'm wanting to guard against. So, yes, it is. We need to be in... It, pick up Jason's thing and his, uh, his uh, sermon, the, the grid and the format and so on, is actually we need to be speaking to people's hearts. That's, that's fundamental in the worship, but it's also in the telling of the story, the repetition of that, and the to make, getting it in your bones, which then um, allows you. But I, I, think, I think the temptation is too much. So the, the, I think somewhere along the line, someone says to just be aware of programmes and all, all the rest, is, is we, we just make the structures... The thing and what what's done formally the thing as opposed to it being seen in the way we live collectively and then out in the world um, more broadly at that point so yes i'm just a little hesitant of going too far down that line because we end up being just um we end up making the the the, uh, the, the pastor ultimately responsible for everything um uh, in one way not saying you said that but there is no yeah um uh, if we're serious anglicans and use the liturgy well uh sunday mornings are richly shaped by the gospel uh, that's great so what's the point of a home group because my home groups are n- nothing like shaped by the gospel in that rich liturgical way neither are they engaging with the world, they're just kind of there. You may ask. Yeah, okay, that's fine. <coughs> An additional vehicle to help people learn how to study the Bible better. But they're also, in addition, if they've done well and the gospel's driving them, they are also, our home groups, and we can still make them better, but they are also, as well as getting to know the Bible better, um, great relationship well, that, that then fuels them out to go and be sort of like wherever God is calling them <coughs> so they are mission they are mission like in God's glory uh, I think I, I, you've kicked something off here haven't you really Thank, thanks Paul uh, in that particular way. I think they, they, they can be um, uh, a, a way of deepening the relationship deepening the uh, and encouraging the heart towards loving the Lord uh, I think they need to be clearly secondary to the Sunday gathering. Slightly nervous, James's former words put it in the thinking category. Learn the Bible better. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm picking up on it, so you, you poked me well. Uh, and, and you want to sort of say, it, it is insofar as it speaks to us. But it, you know, kind of, you know, when I arrived in my uh, curacy, Bible study consisted of people sitting together comparing versions. I like this one better than that. So, I mean, she says, hardly a sitting under it. Um, but B, not letting it speak to the heart in any shape or form, and you kind of think, well, what is the point of this? And but I just think that's as we don't judge all sermons by bad sermons, we don't need to judge all home groups by bad sermons. No, absolutely, and, and we've heard something better over there. So, uh, um, yeah, I, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go here. Before I ask, can I just have about home groups? We've had home groups for many years, and I've been in the same one. And the thing I think we support each other. And if you have a particular concern, you can feel you can talk to your group about it. It's not something you would want to share with the world. But therefore, until we should pray for each other, pray for as well as to do a Bible study, we can pray for each other. We know each other's got particular problems which we don't share with the rest of the church. But that feeling of support, yeah. I think, is something I would miss not having home. My question was going to be, you were talking about stories, and then you talked about the story of the liturgy. Now, are you therefore saying there that the Anglican liturgy, as 
uh, talking about the Anglican liturgy as such. Because, or not, because most, many evangelicals just don't have what I would consider a liturgy anymore. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, we should probably actually stay with the liturgy as the Anglican liturgy, whichever version can be worshipped or otherwise, because that has the story, whereas this rather looser one doesn't have the story. Yeah, I think I think I think that's right. I think the um, this certainly the historic Anglican liturgy. I think it. I think it's there in the modern forms as well. But I think it can be fudged and confused at points. I think it's deliberately designed to be so at certain important points. Um, I, I think it richly and very biblically. It just references biblical metaphors and allusions all over the place. Uh, it, it is a very well-crafted piece of telling us the story of the gospel. Uh, and uh, I think it's loss, not necessarily the the and nows of it, but the loss of that form, uh, is, we deny people something. And one of the reasons I like liturgy is precisely because I, I ask the question, when life is difficult, what resources have we fed them to feed themselves? I'm very struck that when my grandmother at her husband's funeral I was taking um, beginning the early stages of dementia could still join in whole swathes of the creed and the Lord's Prayer it was in her bones to use that phrase uh, that Smith takes us to and I do worry that in not telling it continually, repeatedly we are denying people the ability to have that resource to respond and that's where I that's where I think I get very sad um, that the diet and the depth of that. I'm not going to go there um, because I think we're going to. Do, I was just going to date. You've got is it comments or a question? Very quickly, any church service has a, litig a liturgical structure yeah. of some kind. So it's going to either be a good one or a not so good one. Yeah. But even if you just just sing songs and have a sermon, that's a liturgical. Structure. I. I, I could talk for hours, I'm not going to. Uh, Dave. The essentially, the thing I was going to say was that having also read Smith, that sort of thing is a thing he labours quite a lot. He, he's very, very interested in that. The fact that uh, the, let's not just think about what we say, let's think about the, the, the forum in which we're saying it, the way we're doing it, the way we're storying it in our gatherings. Uh, and one thing he says is that uh, in our uh, kind of post-enlightenment world in which we live, we've um, largely forgotten in that uh, the, the extent to which, uh, as, as Christians, curiously, although the rest of the world around us knows it, the extent to which it is the heartstrings that get twanged uh, by the things we do and the stories that are told and all that sort of stuff you said. Uh, and uh, in his North American context, he says, we essentially, we're borrowing secular style liturgies in presenting our services a bit like a talk show or something like that uh, and, in, and in that the gospel that we're telling and the service structure is telling a different story and they're not working together for each other can i just say still buy the book uh the book despite <laughs> dave summarizing what i've been reading of smith really really well he's really worth reading because he tees this out uh and uh um in all sorts of ways i'm going to finish with wallace if that's all right so just to back up your, your point from another angle, Kent Hughes's book, The Pastor's Book, mm -hmm. um, with Sean Donnelly, is, is an American free church attempt to recapture thoughtful services, moving services, and rediscover liturgy. And um, in, a, in a conversation with Kent, he asked me to send him everything Anglican that was good. <laughs> Uh, because he wanted to include it in the book. But he's, he said that American evangelicalism has suffered from simply being him and sermon sandwich and, and with, with thoughtless, unthought out worship um, and lack of any liturgical gospel structure. And so, I mean, the pastor's book is a very strong commendation of thinking about what we do on Sundays as well as the priority of preaching. Having got that right, don't neglect the old, the, all the other stuff. Get it right as well to reinforce and back up the priority. 
but it's very, very good. Thank you. I don't know that, um, but I'll certainly take that as a hope for the rest of the Thank you.